My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Coarse fishing is something I tend only to dabble at from time to time, usually when the weather isn't suitable to put the boat on the sea, and always it's done using a rod and reel. Never once have I either had the opportunity nor the desire to fish with a pole. To be honest, I never really either saw the need or the point. How could it be quicker or more effective than casting a bait? Well, having spent an evening watching and quizzing stillwater pole expert Nathan Lum to give me some insight into the subject in terms of what to expect, when I eventually point the video camera and voice recorder in his direction, let me say that I now have a completely different outlook on the technique. The main objective of this interview is to put the case for pole fishing, not only in a match fishing context where every second counts in terms of getting the maximum weight result possible, but also for pleasure fishing where you're equally likely to improve your success rate for reasons which if you haven't pole fished before will very quickly become apparent. But before we get too deeply into the whys and wherefores, a few words on the basic outfit might better help set the scene, starting with the main player in all of this, the pole. The pole that I'm using today is a Daiwa tournament that comes as a standard length of 16 metres. Most poles these days come as a 16 metre length. However, you get shorter margin poles which are made of at a thicker carbon or a stronger pole, but obviously they come in shorter lengths due to the weight. As I say, the standard lengths are 16 metres, but you can add on this one goes to 19.5 metres. The cost of the poles, this one's looking probably £2,000 plus but you can get a starter pole probably from about £100 upwards and they probably go to about £2,500. All the section lengths depend on each individual pole but they're all, all now almost put together in just sliding joints. They come with various top kits which is just the very end of the section which is elasticated and they come in different versions as in match kits. Your match kit is for, normally for your lighter elastics so you're fishing for smaller fish or a power kit which, as the name suggests, is fishing for larger fish with a, a thicker elastic and um, a heavier line for the larger fish with that. My understanding of the subject is that, in principle, all poles work the same. They may weigh less or more dependent on the price tag, which obviously will make them either easier or more difficult to handle. But in essence, all are a series of tapered hollow tubes which join together until you come to that elasticated last section. The lower sections are what control your fishing range. But as you feed these back and disjoint the end section to draw hook fish towards you, only then are you in a position to actually play the fish if need be, which presumably is where the elasticated connection to the trace comes into its own, though it will have received some cushion from the elastic in an uncontrolled manner prior to that. So tell us more about this elastic. The elastic that I'm using today is a number 5's elastic. Now they start from a number 2 elastic which is the finest elastic for fishing on canals and goes up to an over to, it's 20 plus elastic which is a real almost like tow rope for, for fishing for larger carp. The difference in the elastics is the lighter the elastic the more that will come out of the end of the pole so that absorbs any runs of the fish and the bounce of the fish so the more elastic that comes out the, the less likely it is to actually lose the fish when you're playing that and bringing it in. For today I'll be fishing with a doubled up elastic which just means it's one length of elastic that loops from one end all the way through the top kit of my pole and back to the other end. The reason for this is when you do hook a fish the elastic tends to come out very smoothly to start off with as though it's a single strand of elastic but then 
the doubled up nature of the elastic tends for it to tighten up quicker so that you can subdue the fish easier. Now also what we have on the pole as well is a pull bung fixed at one end. The reason for that is that when we hook a fish and we're playing the fish and bring it in, if too much elastic's out we're unable to land the fish. This way with a pull bung you can basically strip the elastic back almost as in fly fishing to get your top kit nearer to your actual line to be able to hook the fish. Basically you want your, your elastic as soft as possible within the pole but without it hanging out of the end because that can just create tangles and as it wraps over the end of the pole. So you want the tension of the elastic to just retract back into the pole of its own accord. As I say, the, the lowest grade of elastic is a number two. Now basically that would just be for fishing for your small roach on canals. They normally step up so it'd go two, three, four, five and so on. Now the grade that I'm using, as I say, is a double five, so it's a fairly soft elastic, so I'll be expecting quite a bit of the elastic to come out when I strike into a fish. The larger elastics, the, the grade 20s and things, are for fishing for the, the double figure carp or fishing up to snags where you really need to put pressure onto the fish to steer them away from any snags or, or overhanging trees in your margins with your, your reeds and things like that. The different types of elastic as well is I'm using a solid latex elastic which although it stretches it doesn't stretch as far as another elastic that's come onto the market which is the hollow elastic. A hollow elastic stretches a lot more and is a lot more forgiving but within that as well because it's hollow it's a bigger diameter, a bigger bore so the weight implication is a lot more. You have more weight therefore at the end of your pole which then counterbalances any weight on the pole and can unbalance the whole feel of the pole if you're using it at a long length and with a very heavy elastic. Most of the rest of the equipment you use is exactly the same as you would expect to see an angler fishing with a rod and reel using such as keep nets, landing nets and crucially right now because it's just started raining, a brolly. But there is one other specific difference that being how you control the pole travelling in or out and as importantly while it's out. I'm talking here about pole rollers and rod rests so take us through that aspect of kitting out and getting set up. With fishing at, at longer lengths, I'm fishing today at 12 and a half, 13 metres, to be to enable me to pull the pole back and bring the fish back so I can land that, what I need to do is bring the pole back. Now to enable me to do that securely, I have two pole rollers positioned behind me. They're positioned at a space between them so that the pole can glide back easily and smoothly. It also enables me to, so when I'm shipping the pole back out, the small pole pot that I have full of bait, the pole doesn't bounce and the bait doesn't actually fall out and spill in a place in the swim that I don't want it to. So it helps on two folds. One, for bringing the fish back in nice and smoothly, stops the pole bouncing around, and the same for when I actually take the rig back out that the bait doesn't fall out at the same time. The other thing that I use as well is the, the bump bar at the front of the setup on my box. Now that is mainly used in windy conditions, it just enables me to hold the pole exactly still so it's not moving from left to right in the wind, giving me better bait presentation when in the water. I notice too that you also have a rather special seating box which is full of drawers, which I know contain a wide variety of pre-tied terminal rigs. Obviously, as a match angler, not having to tackle up prior to, and more especially during the match itself, is potentially a huge time saving. But as I now appreciate, that isn't the whole story. You don't need so many pre-tied rigs just for that reason. 
I'm using today a Reeve seat box as well. Now the Reeve seat box, the main aspect of that is that it has a stack system. The stack system is just a series of different trays that all clip together. Within those trays I have numerous pole rigs set up already on winders. These allow me to save time when fishing. I have different rigs for different depths, different braking strains different shotting patterns so these all come into play depending what species of fish I'm actually fishing for the depth I'm fishing for in any given water and also there's duplicates of each rig so should the unfortunate occur that I do break a rig I can put an, an identical rig on and be fishing again within seconds I normally fish with about four different patterns which is the different shape of a float um, depending again what species I'm going for and the different patterns of the floats I have in all different sizes again depending on the weather conditions the depth that I'm fishing at and also the size of the fish that I'm trying to catch within that I have various pre-tied hooks that I've set up at home I have four different hook boxes probably containing about 400 pre-tied hooks so if I do actually lose a hook at any point when fishing it's just the case they're all tied to exactly the same length so it's just a case of reattaching the hook length you don't have to re-plumb to get your depth you're straight fishing straight away. Because you're fishing in still as opposed to running water the actual design size and mode of action of these floats will presumably differ. Now I know that floats are a particular interest of yours because over the winter months when you tend to fish less you put a lot of time and effort into making all your own. What patterns of float then do you favour? The vast majority of my floats are homemade. The patterns that I go for, for today with fishing for ride I want a very delicate float so it's a very slim bodied float with a carbon stem so the fish feels minimal resistance on that. If we were fishing in deeper water and I wanted more stability with a float I'd use a more rounded body float like a rugby ball float but with a wire stem as well because the wire stem just helps hold the float in position and just keeps everything nice and smooth and stable in the water. And what range of hook sizes and line breaking strains do you have these floats rigged up to? The hook lengths that I have tied are anything from 0.008mm which is about £1.5 breaking strain up to about £8.5 breaking strain and the size of the, of the hooks vary from a size 20 to a size 12. I do actually fish heavier than that with my line but if I'm fishing for, for fish where I need more than £7 I tend to fish straight through with a rig rather than attaching a hook length. It minimises any weak spots in the line when you're fishing for such big fish. I know from observing that one vital factor is to practice fisher match venue as close to the event and under as near identical weather and other conditions as is possible to eliminate much of the need for trial and error during the match itself. Talk us through, if you will, reading the water and arriving at an approach that you are happy with. When you're fishing a match, what you want to try and do is to have practiced on a venue where you're fishing ideally or a very similar venue. You don't want to turn up to a venue and fish, as we call it, blind, i.e. not knowing what species of fish that you're fishing for, what your overall target weight will be, because you don't want to go overfeeding a swim straight away and killing your swim off. So you, you need to gauge that and try and get as much information as possible. So when you've actually drawn your peg and you sit down at the water, the things to look at are, are there any possibly any marginal cover um, where you may be fishing later on in the match are there any features such as islands any visual features that you can see above the water 
but then what you need to do is there's as many features under the water that you can't see as there are on top of the water these could be shallow bars, deep gullies, little holes where fish have actually burrowed into the silt aerators provide a, a good place and a holding place for feeding fish and you find within the area of the aerator that the water tends to be deeper just because of the paddles and the, the movement of the water that has disturbed the, the silt so a lot of fish tend to hang around there but you do need to, to check when fishing a venue and plumb up your swim very carefully not only straight out in front of you from your feet to the distance you're fishing but also from left to right to try and find these fish holding areas. What about the effect of things like wind, temperature, water colour, water pressure? Can these have any bearing on fish feeding and how best to get a result? Things like wind obviously can dictate how far out you can fish. If it's re really blowing on a venue, you wouldn't be able to possibly fish a full 16 metres of pole within the wind. You wouldn't get any bait presentation. You could try and hold the pole at that length, but it's better to fish comfortably and effectively at a, at a shorter range rather than trying to, to fish too long. Um, other things to consider are the water clarity. If the water's more coloured, you can tend to catch fish closer to you. As a match fisherman, you want to catch fish as close in as you possibly can for the speed of fishing. It's a lot quicker to bring a fish in from 4 metres out than it is from 16 metres out. Also, with the clarity of the water, you can get away with using a thicker line. Again, it's better to use a thicker line if you can, because you will minimise any breakages when playing fish and bringing fish in. Temperature can, can play a, a big part when fishing, um, especially if you, if you want to be catching the fish up in the water, the warmer the temperature, the better it is. The same with air pressure. Air pressure can really alter the way that the fish feed and behave. So you've got to feel and notice changes in air pressure, not only on the, the run-up to a match, but also during the match it can change and alter how the fish are going to change and react when you're actually fishing. From what I'm hearing then, the two bait placement options seem to be either well up or well down in the water. I don't know what, if anything at all, happens in the middle layers. So talk us through that particular part of the decision making process and why you've decided to fish high up in the water column, specifically targeting Ide today. So you, you've plumbed up and you've found out whereabouts you want to fish within your swim. Sometimes it's good to have two or three different swims so you can actually rotate, catch a few fish from one swim, make, move to another or feed a swim for later on in the match when fish come into the margins to actually feed. But one thing you can do as well, even though if you've just chosen to fish one line out at say 14 metres, you can fish and try and catch fish at varying depths within the, the actual water. There's no point in just finding out that it's five foot deep and fishing on the bottom all of the time because the feeding fish could be anywhere from right on the surface down to five feet deep. So to do this you can either fish on the bottom with all of your shot on your rig down as close to your hook to get your bait down straight away or you can have your shot spread out so that you can try and catch the fish on the drop or specifically fishing very shallow so that you can just target the fish in the upper layers of the water. Fishing for the eye today, going to try and target them up in the water and my favourite bait for doing that is casters. So we'll be sprinkling casters in out of a small toss pot on the, attached to the end of my pole and just trying to tempt the fish to come up as high up in the water as we can towards the surface. The casters, when you get them, they're all different colours. The darker the caster, the slower they sink. So depending whereabouts the fish are, you can dictate how quickly your bait's falling through the water column and try and catch them accordingly. So with it being a warm day today, I'm going to try and target the fish up in the water. 
the swim I've chosen to fish today is about five and a half foot deep and ideally I'll look to try and catch the fish in about 18 inches of water. If you go any shallower than this the fish can spook quite easily especially on a sunny day with the pole casting a shadow over them. Today there's no wind on the water whatsoever so it's very difficult. You may have to end up putting a longer line between the pole tip and the actual float to get the shadow away from the fish which can easily spook them. So up in the water anything as I say 12 inches down to maybe two and a half foot will try and catch the fish. It'll mainly be the eye that we, we catch up in the water, ranging between 12 ounce and about a pound and a half, two pound. Now the larger fish in this lake do normally get caught nearer the bottom of the lake, however it can be a waiting game for them and it's not always guaranteed that they will show up. So to keep fish coming and going into your net, I prefer to fish for the eye so at least you, you're increasing your weight all the time. We also carry a range of baits to enable us to fish different parts of the swim. Be fishing with a caster for the eyed up in the water. However, if the fish don't want to come up in the water on the given day, I carry a selection of worms, maybe meat or corn, heavier baits to target the fish down on the bottom. Also, rather than just having the one main swim that we're fishing today, as I say, 12 and a half, 13 metres out, there's a lot of water to target. It's good to target at the bottom of the near shelf, just at about four or five metres out. The fish normally patrol these areas later on in the match where anglers throw the bait away, so it's always a good area to, to have. If one area of your swim doesn't work, you've always got to back up that together with your margins for maybe those late carp in the, later on in the match. Do you supplementary feed these extra swims throughout the match, building them up as bankers in case you need to try something different? Yep, try and keep the swims primed and, and prepped up, ready to go on them at any time. So if your swim dies, your main swim dies, you've always got a backup plan to go onto it where hopefully you can start catching fish straight away. Earlier, while I was waiting for you to arrive, I was chatting to another match angler in the reception area who was of the opinion that double or triple swim feeding can split up the fish you have in front of you, making it more difficult rather than more of an investment for getting a result. You can do it if you try and feed swims that are too close to one another because you can split a shoal. But if we're fishing here at 12.5 to 13 metres out and then our other swim close in is only at four, it's a big difference between the two. There's a lot of water in between them and you won't split a shoal that big. When you go to a new fishery, however similar it might be to other venues you know, it's still a new match venue to you. Do you then try and tap into other sources of information? And if so, what might these be? Yeah, we research and try and get as much information as possible from people that live in the area, if you know, if you've got friends around the area. The internet now is obviously very good for that. The Angling Press, Angling Times, you can get information and always phoning the, the actual fishery and speaking to the manager there can give you an idea of what fish are actually in the lake and how they've been caught in recent weeks. And might you also get live information, particularly if you're a member of a managed team, while the match is actually going on? Only from what you see on the matches at Highfield, anglers aren't or spectators aren't allowed to walk round the match lake during the course of a match, just in case that puts off any of the fish. What we tend to do is just keep an eye out to see what other anglers are catching, and that may dictate on what method you cho choose to fish within the match. A tactical switch is something you regularly do, or do you tend to stick to a game plan for the day? I think you've always got to look at it with an open mind. You may go with plan A and that may work on a given day. However, more often than not, your plan will only work for so long. So you've got to be adaptable and I think it's the anglers that adapt quickest, do the best. 
So the match comes around and on the day you've decided to fish high up in the water. Talk us through the tackle and tactical approach for getting a result and targeting what? So with fishing up in the water I'm using a very fine elastic it's a doubled number fives. If I was using a, a heavier elastic, as the fish come up and attack the bait and hit the bait, they hit it that hard when they're feeding, you'd be bumping fish all the time. With a lighter elastic, more elastic comes out and cushions the fish when they bite at the bait. So a nice light elastic is best. As for tackle, a very fine float, so the fish feel minimal resistance when they're actually taking the bait, and a nice light line. I'm using 0.12 of a millimetre line so it's very fine that coupled with a very light hook pattern it's a very fine wire gauge it's an 801 tubertini which is a very fine hook if I was trying to catch up in the water with a heavy hook the weight of the hook would take the casters down through the shoulder fish too quickly and it'd look unnatural so you wouldn't catch the fish as quickly then bait choice is always casters feeding up in the water shotting pattern as well for fishing up in the water I'll start out with a bulk of number 10 shot halfway between my hook and my float but because it's a, a bulk of shot these can be spread out I always use number 10 shots so I can spread them out and get a slower fall and presentation if need be depending how the fish want to feed on any given day bait choice for feeding up in water for the for the eyed is always casters it's always my number one bait choice Sometimes though unfortunately you can be fishing for the eide and the small roach will move in so if that happens you can always put a, a small cube of meat on. The eide seem to like the meat, will take that yet the roach find it that difficult to fit in the mouths so you're not having to rebait and, and chip in and out all of the time catching small roach. The feeding for the eide here at Highfields I always feed via a pole cup that's permanently attached to the end of my pole. That's just a small plastic cup fill that with casters rather than catapulting the bait out. If you're catapulting certainly in it uh, on a windy day or in a windy situation the bait can spread too far and the feeding fish will be spread over a wide area. I want to try and concentrate the fish into as small areas as possible that way getting more fish and more bites and the pole cup delivering the bait directly on top of where you're fishing gives me that opportunity to do so. What I'll do is I'll ship out and I'll shake half of the casters out of my small cup. That will probably deliver about 100 casters in any one time. Once I've done that, I can probably do that two or three times, then the cup will be empty. At that point, I'll ship in immediately if I've not had a fish and continue to do that. I'm trying to create a continuous stream of casters falling through the water to the fish to feed in. If all of the casters had fallen past the area or the depth that I want to catch them, my hook bait would then look unnatural and the fish wouldn't take the bait. What I've also seen you do when the feed casters run out but the bait still seems to be intact is scoop up a cup of water and sprinkle that onto the surface. Yep, if I've not caught anything it's a way, it's almost a cheating method because you're just trying to mug the odd fish. It's just to scoop up a little bit of water with your pole cup and drop that back over where you'd been feeding the casters. The fish come to the noise that's splashing on the water thinking it's the casters going in again but the only actual casters there, the only bait is the ones with your hook in. So as I say you can get the odd mugfish like that and it saves you shipping the pole all the way back in without a fish. This really is where the pole comes into its own allowing you total control of bait drop and accuracy of placement. Yep, with the pole it, it's perfect. With a rod and line you wouldn't have that opportunity to try and catch the fish like that. You'd have to reel in all the time. As I say, with the pole you, you're fishing at exactly the same distance out every single time. If you mark your pole to an object on the far bank, 
it ensures that you're fishing in exactly the same spot every single time so the fish should be feeding directly under your pole tip every time you drop the casters in. High fuel fishery where we are today is potentially an excellent upper layers water in the main because it carries a large head of good sized hide which can soon rack up a big match weight. But let's say you're not fishing an hide water. Would you still consider trying high up in the water column for other species? I suppose however small these fish may be, it's presumably the same for everyone. Yep, if I'm fishing up in the water and start getting plagued by small fish, it's always a good idea to have a look around to see what other people are catching. Now if they're catching the small fish as well, it may be that the eye aren't feeding on that particular day, or that you're actually fishing at the wrong level within the water. The fish may be happier feeding further down in the water, or higher up in the water. It's not just this case of saying that they don't want to feed on that day can try going through the different levels of the water trying to catch the eyed. Maybe fishing slightly off your feed so you're not fishing directly where the casters are going in or maybe it's altering the feeding pattern i.e. putting more casters in in one go or just feeding very sparingly and, and trying to get the fish to hunt out your hook bait more. So it all depends. However changing the bait as well and if none of that happens it's time to start looking at fishing a different swim and maybe it's for a different species. What then might persuade you to fish further down? And what species might you then be hoping to target? If I'm not catching up in the water or I feel that I'm catching too slow up that I can't compete within the match, another option is to then try and target the fish down on the actual bottom of the lake. You tend to get the bigger fish down on the bottom, so what I'd be looking to do is what we call dump feeding the swim, which is putting a large pot of bait in and rather than having a small pole cup attached to the end of the pole it's just one big cup that we put in initially and then fish straight over that. The species that we'd be looking to catch would be barbel or maybe carp. It can be a gamble because they won't always show up and you could have been catching more ride or more fish up in the water but they do tend to be the bigger fish on the bottom and it can be a bit of a gamble but again keeping an eye on what other anglers are doing around you if they start catching on the bottom it may become obvious that the fish want to feed on the bottom so by watching other anglers and what they're doing may dictate the, the decisions that you make when deciding where to fish in the match. So far you've mentioned two types of loose feeding cup both of which attach to the end of the pole. Is there ever any loose feeding done which doesn't involve the use of the pole? As I say, the large cup, that will be used for feeding some of the swims. However, if I'm feeding a margin swim, I don't want to be keep bringing my pole in all of the time to then go to another swim because it's too slow. So if I can try and pick a couple of swims that are close by to me that I can actually feed by hand while still fishing me out me far out line for the for the eyed I'll look to do that this would normally be a swim at about five meters out in front of me and maybe it's one or both sides of the margins that I can feed by hand and it doesn't interrupt my fishing whilst fishing out long. When I was wandering around earlier I noticed that one or two people were catapulting loose feed into the water but you don't rate that approach. No, not on this fishery. For certain fishing we do, and you, you can and you will catch by catapulting, but as I say, the, the bait gets spread over too wide an area. I prefer to try and condense all of my fish into one small feeding zone of about a metre square, but with a catapult you could be spreading those over to four metres square, which then, obviously, you, the chance of you catching is reduced down to about 25%, so I, I try to condense this fish into as small a space as possible to catch them. Now so far we've looked in detail at fishing either high up in the water column or hard on the bottom. But what about the middle ground between the two? How often does this become a factor? How do you best exploit it? And for what species of fish? 
The middle layer of the water I very rarely fish to be honest. I either look to catch in the top third of the water because that's where the fish will be feeding confidently. So I'll either try and catch them within the top third of the water at varying depths within that top third or nail to the bottom, direct on the bottom. For the fishing I do it's very rare that you'll catch fish from the bottom up to half depth. At what point then would you consider that enough time has been wasted fishing one particular approach and that you may have been going about things in the wrong way? It all depends because you, you can be plugging away trying to catch the fish either on the bottom or, or up in the water but I think that one of the main things is to watch what other anglers are doing as well. If everybody seems to be struggling there's no point in just moving swim for the sake of it. It could be that the fish aren't feeding at that particular time within the match and that they will come onto the feed but equally you don't want to spend too much time almost wasting your time fishing a swim where the fish don't want to be. So I think you get a feeling for when you should be catching or when you shouldn't, but the key really is to watch the other anglers around you, to try and gauge what they're doing, how they're catching, and whether they're catching the fish up in the water or down on the deck. And if you can't be the leader of that, just try and follow what the other anglers are doing and learn by their examples. So how long might you then give it before you feel the need for a change? It all depends what fish you're actually trying to, to catch as well. With the Eide, because the Eide are a relatively small fish, you need to catch a lot of them to, to win a match, so you need to be catching them almost instantly. You can't wait an hour without catching an Eide and then hope to catch up, whereas if you were fishing for carp or barbel, which are bigger fish, so obviously they're big weight builders within a match situation, you can leave that longer to catch. Two carp in this lake could give you £30, whereas two are, and you could catch that within 10 minutes, but you'd never catch 30 pounds of hide in 10 minutes. So it, it is a, a real gamble, and it, it's just a almost a suck-it-and-see scenario. But I wouldn't fish for hide for more than 30 minutes. If I've not caught one in 30 minutes, it'd be a line that I'd forget, and I'd look to catch a different species of fish on the day. But you'd always first start off looking for the smaller fish, hoping for at least something in the net, if the feeding. Certainly, I'd, I'd go for the smaller fish, maybe whilst I was even just priming my other swims. My main target for the day could be carp, but it's very unlikely that the carp will feed exactly from the start of the match. So it's better to be catching something, putting them in and waiting for the carp to feed down the margins. At least you've got a few pounds in your net before you actually target the carp. Looking around at the gear you've got set up, I can't help but notice that you have three spur pole end sections out ready and rigged. Presumably, these are all different. What variations might you want then to have set up ready for a venue that you're fishing for the first time? And what would these be looking to achieve? You'd try and cover all eventualities, to be honest with you. Um, I always set up a lot of kits. I'd, I'd set up anything up to ten different kits for a five-hour match. And this would just try and cover every eventuality. Sometimes you can confuse yourself by having too many kits set up and not really giving them any of them justice and you're going from kit to kit. But I think sometimes if you can start on a kit that you know is going to catch and then just kind of plod away with that and make variations to the actual rig whilst you're fishing. A lot of the rigs that I have set up, even though there may be 10 of them, are duplicates. So they're all set up to save time whilst I'm fishing rather than if I trash a rig, I've got to then get my box out and start making a new rig up. So it may look that there's a lot of kit there, but it's just to save time in a match situation. And presumably, all these rigs are labelled or identifiable to you in some way or other to save time by not having to go through them checking which one is which. 
Yep, they are. They're all known. We know exactly what's on each one. That will either be from the from the depth of them, from the colour of the elastic dictates what strength the elastic is, so we know as well with that, from the type of float. And also what we do as well is we just, once we've plumbed up or we've set a, a depth that we want to fish at, we'll just put a little mark on the, on the pole with a, a bottle of Tipex and it'll just denote exactly where the float should be. So if it does slip at any point down the line or up the line during the match, you can always just check again as a quick guide to know that you're fishing at exactly the right depth. As someone who fishes the pole by choice, yet still has a good sound knowledge of the alternative, which is the rod and reel, Sum up for us then, if you will, the advantages and disadvantages of both approaches for match fishing, pleasure fishing and for larger specimen fish. It all comes down to personal preference. On this fishery, my first choice on any peg would be to fish with the pole. It's something that I prefer to do and, and I feel that's where my, my skill is based really. However, you can catch fish on it on any method be it uh, rod and line with a, a waggler and the old traditional float or by fishing what we call the tip as in ledgering or fishing with the method feeder. The advantages those methods give you is that you can fish those at any place within your swim. Obviously with a pole you can only reach certain levels, certain distances. So if you were fishing a swim that's 30 metres wide, if the fish were on the far bank and, and they have spooked as you're catching them and, and moved further out past your pole line, if you were just stuck fishing your pole, you wouldn't be able to get to where the feeding fish are. So being adaptable and either fishing the waggler or the, or the method or the tip towards those fish, you can stay in contact with the fish and, and chase them out into the lake if required. Accuracy in terms of presentation and regularly hooking up fish is all very well. But if you're targeting bigger fish, then surely using a rod and reel to play them would speed the whole process up. That said, I know that some carp anglers still use the concept of the pole by choice, so maybe that isn't necessarily the case. You can catch almost any size of fish, to be honest with you, on a pole. A lot of the, the play in the fish with a pole is done for you by the elastic system within the pole. That cushions the lunges and the surges that the larger fish make. So sometimes if you're fishing a rod and line you've only got the tip of the rod to actually cushion those surges but with the elastic it can either stretch out half a metre or up to 10 metres of elastic can come out if it's a large fish so that gives you a lot of control and for myself I've had fish out to over 26 pound on a pole but I've never had anything like that on a rod and line so it doesn't necessarily show that a rod and line is better for big fish. Can you now explain to us what exactly is a floating pole, what advantages it might bring and why some fisheries, such as this one for example, choose to ban it? The floating pole is a method that I don't use. It involves attaching a, a very short piece of line direct to, to your elastic setup. You've got no float whatsoever. You will ship the pole out then and it will just lay on the, on the surface of the water. So what you'll have there is your pole floating on the water with a short piece of line and normally a banded pellet, just a hard pellet in a little rubber band attached to your hook and then your catapult pellets around the end of your pole and the fish will come up and hook themselves against your baited banded pellet. Now the thing is where this, this, the lack of skill comes from in that is that the fish will automatically hook themselves against the weight of the pole, what we call being a bolt rig. So all you're doing as an angler is shipping the pole out, laying it on the water and shipping it back in. There's very little skill in it, to be honest with you, other than being able to, to fire pellets out of a catapult. And for my final question, because they offer limited line length, I'm wrong in thinking that poles have no place on rivers. 
It can be, and, and one thing where it can be very successful um, on rivers is with a rod and line, you can let the your float and your terminal tackle trot down the the river, but with a pole, you can still do that and follow your float down, but you can slow the bait down more or speed it up and, and go fully with the flow of the river. So again, the pole just gives you that control and the accuracy over the bait that's actually in the water. Um, but again, it is limited to the length that you can actually fish. But yeah, it's, it's equally as successful on running water as it is on still water. But if you slow the run the float down with the pole, won't that cause the bait to rise in the water column? Exactly. And that's what sometimes what the fish want, where it, it's kicking up slightly. The same as you would with a stick float when you're holding it back against the toe and the bait's kicking up. But you can let it trot through at exactly the same pace as that the river's flowing. It, again, it just gives you more control than you have with a rod and line. And with a 16 metre pole, you have 32 metres of river to cover, following the float through, which is quite a lot of water. Yes, yeah, as you say, you know, you, you can follow it through, or equally, if you're trying to catch the fish in one feeding zone, you may only be trotting for about five metres, so you can just let it go part way through, lift it and drop it part way through, which would then be a lot quicker than fishing with a rod and line. I must say that having spent some time observing and talking pole fishing, that if I was a still water course fisherman, I would now be an instant convert. A well thought out and exceptionally well executed technique that makes complete and utter sense. My thanks then to Nathan Long and to the staff of Highfield Fishery at Hamilton for the cooperation in the making of both this podcast and the pole fishing video. And can I add that Highfield Fishery Manager George Wilson has also recorded a podcast interview regarding the specifics of the fishery itself, with particular emphasis on the stocking and catching of eyed. <laughs>